Beautiful. Welcome to the Anything Goes podcast, the best geek and pop culture show broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney. As we're continuing our month of horror remakes reviews, as you can tell from the title, we're talking about John Carpenter's The Thing. And when it comes to Carpenter movies, there's only there's a few people who uh, share my love for John Carpenter's movies, but there's one person in particular when it comes to John Carpenter and I that we just share just so much passion for. And a person who has not been on the show in a very long time, probably since the Black Christmas Review, if I'm not mistaken. It's a final countdown. Yeah. I'm sorry. We were just talking about that before. Yeah. Tim's hatred of that song. So I'm going to walk out of this podcast <laughs> right now, and I'm going to leave him alone for, for the end of time. I'm leaving you, Tim. I knew this countdown was eventually going to happen. This is be your final appearance on the show. Yes, safe. It's final. Yeah. Yeah. It's Mike Wilson, everybody. How you doing, folks? Oh, man. Are you glad to be back on the show? Absolutely. Glad to be back. It's been a while. It's been a while since I... Yeah, that's a bad song, okay? <laughs> that's like the final ca- countdown in that, you know? Ice cream to horse manure. That's uh, the e- Either way, I feel stained at it. <laughs> There's going to be plenty of blood stains on my uh, basement floor as we're doing this. <laughs> As, all right, enough of this uh, shenanigans. Let's jump into our review of John Carpenter's The Thing right now. first become aware of john carpenter's the thing um well probably sometime in the 90s when it was on sci-fi channel and i was watching it you know in bits and pieces obviously you turn on the tv every now and again you catch a movie and you know you're fascinated by it captured by it um i didn't know it was john carpenter though i didn't really know who john carpenter was i'd heard the name i think the first time i ever heard john carpenter's name was a tv spot for village of the damned Mm -hmm. you know um but i watched it and it was just bizarre weird and you know creepy i don't think i watched the whole thing mm-hmm. i think it was just a little too violent for my young i was saying how eyes. old were you at the time when you saw this um well i would have to say i was in my early teens 13 or 14 maybe 12 13 or 14 but like i said i didn't see the whole movie back then i just caught it right in the middle i caught it at the the point where they're first looking at the the um I guess it would be the body they burned in the dog kennel, and then there's the, uh, it started forming the new dog, and mm-hmm. then there's, like, the imitation of it still inside. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, what the, there's a dog in that thing, what the fuck is happening? Right. It, it's, it's imitated, like, it was bizarre, and it was very grisly, very visceral, mm-hmm. which we will continue to discuss. Yeah, and it was, it's interesting, this, like, depending on how old you are, uh, you know, I was trying to cover you up, and you were, like, like taking a sip of your drink and everything, uh, but no, you did that slurp. Yeah, I bring an element of fun to this, you know? You, you bring an element. Uh, fun would not be the word yeah, I'd use. I it should. would be an F word you bring to the show. I wanted to use the word fun. What F word would you use? Farts. That's what you bring to the show. Oh, and you don't? <laughs> no. I, I'm a classy person. 
You're full of shit. <laughs> I know that because of your farts. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I mean, that's where we get where we go to fucking Popeyes before we come to. Hey, you wanted to go? I, it was your birthday, so I was gonna let you pick. Yes, of course. So, um, like you, uh, I, I mean, before I, I get into my history of the thing, did you already have you already seen John Carpenter's Halloween by this point? Nope. Okay, this, this actually may have been. Either shortly before or shortly after I saw Halloween, because I saw Halloween when I was 13, but I cannot remember if this was just before or just after. Gotcha. And like you, I had a very similar experience when it came to my first uh, viewing of this movie, that I was maybe middle school at this point, and it was my friend Renee and a bunch of our friends. We, we had like sleepovers at our friend CJ's house. Uh, we would watch horror movies, and we would scare each other. Did you have pillow fights? No, we were, we're, we should talk about boys. Uh, it's a sleepover. Yes, it's a sleepover, but it was all dudes. Oh, okay. Would you do each other's hair and makeup? <laughs> no, but we did put we did like put one of our friend's hands in water to make well, him pee while he's sleeping. If yeah, it didn't work, because he knocked over the cup in the middle of the night, so uh, uh, you got what you deserve. Exactly. Did you blame it on him and say, "Look, that's piss." <laughs> Somehow he rolled over and peed pissed off by, by his wrist and elbow. Yeah. Well, he was laying on his side. He leaned off the bed and he pissed and got it on the nah, floor. No, he was on the floor. Okay. Yeah, leaning very close to the edge and he peed on the floor. <laughs> um, and I don't know how the hell we got the recommendation to see this movie. It may have been Renee's older brother Chris that said like, "Oh, you got to check this out," or it may have been uh, one of our parents who knew knew that we liked horror movies and. For the first time, we were all sitting down in this basement. It lights off in the middle of the night, and we watching it as this movie unfolds in front of us, and then scene after scene of things like escalating of grisliness, where like whether it be the, the, the defibrillator scene or the blood test scene, and it just burned. It etched its way into our memory, and I'll never forget the first time I saw it. I was like, "Wow, this is." And I had a little, I'll admit, I had a little trouble going to sleep that night because I was freaked out by this movie. Because you know, because you just start looking around the room, and you start getting kind of paranoid of all the people you're around. But um, and it's just really, it's never been far from me. The thing it's always been a part. It's always been part in the back of my mind when it comes to horror movies. It's kind of like how I would judge movies, where like its effectiveness and how you can be creative within the means of a, a certain genre. And I think the th- the thing kind of exemplifies exemplifies those kind of things, <laughs> no no pun intended, because um, I use things and things and uh, yeah. You're trying not to laugh, trying to make me sound crazier than I already am. Um, if I'm trying not to laugh, it's because it's I'm not laughing and <laughs> that fell flat in its ass. So the movie opens <laughs> with a helicopter chasing a dog, and because you. Because by the time you saw it for the, because you said uh, we were ta- we rewatched we rewatched uh, both movies, the thing from another world and Carpenter's the thing before we sat down to record this. But the first time you actually sat down and watched it all the way through was not was all the way through without breaks was, it was recently, with you. Oh, like, uh, like about a year or two ago, I think. And, and like you said, like, like it's kind of bizarre how this movie is. But then this movie opens up with just a helicopter with dudes shooting at a, a husky wolf running through the snow. It, what, what was your first reaction to that? Like, how how do you re- react to something so so perturbing like that? Well, I look at that and I think to myself that the uh, message that no animals were harmed in the making of this film is a lie. Um, well, you never know. I mean, the dog li- apparently we looked up the dog. The dog apparently lived to be eighteen. Yeah, some humans Jed. don't live that long. No, 
And it was in a bunch of a few other movies after this. Not so. many, like only five movies total. Both of them were. Uh, what, the, what the fuck was the name of that? One was White Fang. The, the two White Fangs. The two White Fangs and something else. Uh, and something else and the thing. But, That's uh, his first movie. Yeah. And as many acting credits as John Cazale, but not as many Academy Awards. I, John Cazale was like the person that went through my mind. I was like, yeah, he had five credits. But he's like, the John Cazale of dogs. He's the John Cazale. Jed is the John Cazale of dogs. If you don't know who John Cazale is, he's Freighter from the Godfather movies. If you don't know the actor's name offhand, John Cazale. Except he lived to old age. Yeah. but a dog. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. If we're, if we're going to go in dog years comparatively to human years, then yes. Uh, but John Cazale was... All five of his movies are groundbreaking parts of American cinema. And it's the conversation of the two Godfathers, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. This has been your John Gazelle Trivia Corner. He never lived long enough to do uh, straight to VHS when his career tanked. No. He, he went out on top, so. <laughs> However, he was an archival footage in Godfather Part 3, and that was also nominated for Best Picture, so you know what? He never lived to do Cop Dog. Oh, Cop Dog. Ugh. Anyway. And so, it's interesting with, uh, after we see these Norwegians chasing this wolf and you're kind of wondering what the hell is going on, we're introduced to the cast of the uh, science facility that's going on in Antarctica in 1982, and we see people uh, playing pool, uh, some people just like... They got arcade machines. Arcade machines, we have pinball machines, and we see uh, Kurt Russell playing McCready, playing a chess game, and the, the game is called Chess Master. And the f- one thought that ran through my head this time watching it um, was when the chess game beats him, he opens up like the motherboard and he pours his uh, whiskey or bourbon into the, the machine stuff. He's the first rage quitter. Uh, I don't know. I mean, what year would war games take place? It's like 84. Okay, so maybe he is the first rage quitter. However, if you rage quit war games, it had, it could have... Actually, well, no, because uh, a year later, uh, I was going to say Rocky Three when Paulie throws his uh, booze at the pinball machine. Technically, would you say that's a rage quit, even though he never began with pinball? I mean, like, he wanted to rage quit. It was quit. a preemptive rage quit. Everyone he wanted to rage quit pinball. <laughs> I mean, he wanted to rage quit life at that point. That's, I why, mean. that's why when you tilt the machine, if you shake it too many times, <laughs> the machine rage quits you. <laughs> I mean, if like how many, how many fucked up stories would have been like if the arcade machines could hit back? Oh, like the punch! Imagine like the punch machine. Yes, that rates your punches, and it's just so sick of your bullshit one day and it punches you back. <laughs> like the, I remember the arm wrestling game by uh, what was that, I think Capcom. Yes, imagine that thing just like pulled your arm off one day because it was sick and tired of your shit. It just like just snap and it just just rip your arm out. You suck it like Jeff Goldblum in the and uh, the fly. I'm gonna try that again, but who's who's got an old arm wrestling arcade? Machine? Um, the only places where I've seen it Barcade. recently, uh, Barcade and um, fucking uh, it's not a paid endorsement. Uh, rest stops. Rest stops on, like, uh, the New Jersey Turnpike and stuff. Like, they have okay. some arcade games. And I remember one of them still had that years ago. But the Norwegians land in the at the uh, the science facility, which we don't know what the hell they're doing there. We don't know what they're doing there. We don't know what they're doing there in the original thing. No, I mean, at least it was, there was an, it was an outpost of the military in the original. That's the one thing. But we don't know what the hell. I mean, other well, than talk about the Russians a lot, though. So. Yes. Uh, Post-World War II, Cold War, bullshit. Yes. <laughs> I love how when we were watching The Thing from Another Planet, we were, or Thing from Another World, I should say, you were just doing, like, your 50s stock. 1950s. Uh, I knows best. Uh, voice the entire time. I mean, like, of course, like, a lot of people talk like that, and the acting became more natural as it went, went on in movies, well, but... It's, it's that classic, like, 50s, you know, that era of Hollywood, Edward G. Robinson. 
Yeah. Ah, see? Yeah, see? Yeah, talk like this. I mean, it's never more out of place than when G. Robinson is in the Ten Commandments. Oh, God. <laughs> and he talks just like that. Uh, uh, is he smoking a cigar? <laughs> yeah, the first cigar in, in uh, ancient history. And so the Norwegians land at the camp, continue to open fire on the uh, the dog. One, The pilot of the helicopter decides to th- uh, throw a grenade, loses it, decide- and loses it in the snow behind the helicopter they land in. Tries to dig for it, but like a moron. You don't dig for a grenade. No, so. you run from it. You run from a grenade. And obviously, he pays for it for his life. And I love how, like, I, I just, we're watching it. I'm just like, dumbass. And boom, the helicopter goes up in flames. The other Norwegian, the one who's still alive, fires into the crowd of our American scientists here. Clearly spooked. Yes. Wounds one of them, but doesn't give a shit about them. Walks right past the group as they're all taking cover from him. As he continues to go after the dog. The stuff he was saying in Norwegian was translated as, like, it's not a dog, get away from it, move, you know? Like, someone actually did, uh, I, I was reading, looking up trivia while we were doing this, and it was actually trans- translated. I didn't know if it was, like, it was kind of, like, didn't know if it was, like, fake Norwegian, where they're just kind of no. making up sense, but, or it was legit. Uh, or if it were, like, something in Norwegian that says something else, like, hi, I'm John Carpenter, you're <laughs> watching the thing, thank you for buying this on Blu-ray, 30 years, <laughs> five years in the future. Um... You know, because, like, if you think of, uh, like, the Germans spoken in Die Hard, like, it's all gibberish. Like, it, it, it makes no real sense in, in actual Is this confirmed? Term. Yes. Okay. Uh, that's something that's brought up, I think, in the commentary track or, like, in – people have brought that up uh, later on. Well, that's what you, happens when you let Vigo the Carpathian be one of your henchmen robbing a bank. <laughs> and he tries to speak German. With, <laughs> he was a Moldavian tyrant, not a German. Which will – he's another – he's in a John Carpenter movie. He's in In the Mouth of Madness, which we'll uh, bring up later on in the, and later in this review. And so the Norwegians get, finally has a chance to kill the dog, but that's when the captain of the uh, outpost fucking caps the Norwegian with one shot. Die. And I love, like, he takes in the eye and he falls down and he kind of, like, kind of, like, twitches. Twitches. Very much like how in, uh, what's his name? It's actually Chainsaw Massacre when he gets clocked in the head and he goes, he twitches from the head. Wound. Oh, uh. Is it Kirk? Gary? Kirk. 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 I mean. Well, he starts, like, full on, like, seizuring. Seizuring because, like, a piece of his skull is embedded in his brain and, like, his nerves are firing and everything. But um, it's interesting because at the end of the scene, uh, they put up the, the fire of the helicopter and McCready has a line, like, the first goddamn week of winter. And I use that line, actually, uh, in relation to something really happened to me when I was actually up at college. It was my final semester, and it was the very first weekend after the first week of classes. Um, I believe it was a Friday night, and all my friends, are, are part of the SEPA crew, and I went to a, a house party on campus and what they would call the village was kind of like the condo houses on campus, like the nicer places you could live. It's more expensive to live there, but you're more in smaller apartments rather than actual dorms. And a friend of ours uh, got into a fight, and uh, another one, another friend of ours had to get in, in between, and fists were thrown, a lot of things were – clothes were torn, everything. Ooh. We had – we I had to restrain two of my friends back from going in and jumping this dude who started the shit – um, and we're all walk, we're all walking back to the dorms and we're just kind of like all freaked out and just kind of like, wow, this is a great way to start it. And I, I said like the first goddamn week of winter, nobody got that reference but me, but I was kind of proud of myself. But obviously it, it stayed with me because as long as you were proud of yourself, that's all that matters. I mean, nobody else is proud of me, so I, I have to be proud of myself. That's very true. <laughs> hey. <laughs> and so 
we find out that these Norwegians came from a camp not too far away, and the doctor, uh, Copper, decides, like, um, to go to the camp and investigate and see if there's anything going on there. Oh, he's looting the place, taking papers, VHS tapes. They're looking for any answers. The camp is fucked up. Yeah. There's a guy there who apparently slit his wrists and his neck, like, very far open, and the blood froze while dripping out. Which I wonder, like, we were talking about, like, I wonder if like, his blood froze, and that's why he's like, shit, I gotta cut my throat, I, because... His wrists are frozen, now I cut the throat. Because, it, like, my blood's coagulated, and, like, everything's kind of like, I'm not bleeding here. Oh, I just have to but carve my throat. be able to move his arms at that point or like when like when his nerve endings be cut at that point probably unless he cut his throat first and then his probably, he would have been well i mean realistically he would have been frostbitten to hell but in, in yeah the movie. but the, the one of the greatest pieces of of costuming is in this moment where we see mccready's hat for the first time the weird sombrero that he wears when he's flying the helicopter that's very practical in the antarctic obviously it's not a personal statement whatsoever it's it's 100 percent meant to be in the antarctic he needed an eye patch <laughs> <laughs> it would be kind of uh, terrible and, and for, a more gravelly voice it would be more terrible for <laughs> now it's magic it, like, escape from Antarctica is, no, that's what they should have called it no he should be Captain Rod that's who he should have been in okay. this movie with the eye patch and the fake eye flying the helicopter call me Snake uh, now, I'm just, now I'm just thinking of Metal Gear Solid now or Escape from New York. Yes. And I, the reason why, because whenever I think of, whenever I say the word snake in, in regards of a name, I always think of you because uh, you're the big Metal Gear Solid fan and my friends, my group of friends. Well, it's funny because I remember watching Escape from L.A., like the ending of it, I caught with a buddy one time. And every time we hear somebody say, like, don't do it, snake. And then he re- he responds like this. It's like, God damn it, Metal Gear. <laughs> And it's weird because last night I actually brought up a Metal Gear Solid Five in regards to um, you believe you're one character, but it actually turns out to be a whole lot. Spoilers, yeah. Uh, spoil- like, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. You are not Big Boss. You are not Big Boss at the end of Metal Gear Solid Five, or the entire game, I should say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Ground Zeroes, you are, and that's technically Metal Gear Solid Five, right? That's not a prequel leading into it, or... It's part of Metal Gear Solid Five. It was released as an early prologue because the game was taking forever to come out. Mm. And um, it is a very different chapter from the rest of the game. Not so much gameplay-wise, but, like, your missions, your objectives. Mm. But it was also meant... It, it was almost like a uh, large demo. Right. A very large demo. And a very large, expensive demo. Yeah, it came out at, like, 40 bucks. That was a bit too much. It should have come out as, like, 20 Yeah, because, like, how much time did you... Oh, I poured it countless hours into it because I was addicted to it. Okay. I was addicted to the gameplay. So I spent – I would clear out the whole base. I would – I'd play it in any way I could, you know? Hmm. <laughs> anyway. Um, Off subject. Yeah. Again. Uh, but as this – This happens with us. Yeah, this happens with us and this is, for this format. It's, it's totally appropriate. And so it's interesting that how this movie, Carpenter's the Thing, treats the Norwegian camp kind of like how the original thing was. Well, we see footage of – the explorers going out to finding the saucer, using thermite charges to. Oh, that's, blow. One, that's one of many nods to the original. Yes, as well as like you'd see like in like how some of the scenes are blocked and everything. Um, they stand around the whole imprint of it and say, "Oh, look, a flying saucer!" Right. Um, Nobody says, "Holy cats!" Thank God. No. <laughs> and of course, like the footage of the Norwegian stuff is in black and white, just like how the original one was shot in black and white. Um, 
Another thing I forgot, I forgot to bring up about the opening the opening shot of the thing. I, this is one of my side notes here I put down later on. That we see the flying saucer enter Earth's atmosphere and, cra- and we don't see it crash, but we see it like head towards Antarctica. Predator rips off the very same shot. Fair enough. But... Where, like, and like I think because uh, it's like well, the you... ship doesn't crash. You see it yeah. let out like an escape pod. No, but we see a ship. And an alien enter Earth's atmosphere at one point, and in a very similar fashion, where it's opened up on the stars of the galaxy. A ship comes in, and instead of like in the thing, it just cuts between one shot to the other. Uh, Predator it pans with the ship as it goes towards uh, Earth and everything. Um, but with the Norwegian camp, it's watching it this time because um, the version I'm watching it on it was the we we watched it on was on the Shout Factory Collector's Edition of the thing. And it was a 2K uh, scan, taken from a 2K scan of the original 35mm negative overseed by, oversaw by Dean Cundy. Now, we love the look of the 35-year anniversary of Halloween. Whoa, uh, <laughs> now, which one do you think looks better? Halloween. Okay, you just saying, are you just saying that just for the sake of it? By or default, do- no, because I watched that fucking thing obsessively and it looks like it was shot yesterday. Right. And, but what do you think of Kanye's cinematography here? Phenomenal, again. Like, I, I, I don't know if I attribute it as much to Kanye's cinematography. Because Kanye's cinematography, I guess the, the right way to would say is sort of, I don't want to say bound by Carpenter's direction. Right. But if Carpenter's not the one pointing these things out, he has nothing to base his cinematography on. That's why I remember asking you before, did he do Prince of Darkness? Right. Because I I just love the look of Carpenter's movies. Yes. And even if he doesn't have Cundy as a cinematography, he still gets something out that feels very himself. Yes. It has like a real signature look to it. Yeah, whether it be this or Prince of Darkness or They Live. Like or, I, watch, I watch Prince of Darkness and I see Donald Pleasance in it and a year later he's in Halloween 4, which was filmed entirely differently from Carpenter's process. Yeah. Since they got away. And I, like it's pretty cool to see like that era Dr. Loomis still in like the Carpenter look. And the thing is, Halloween 4, in comparison to Prince of Darkness, Halloween 4 looks more 80s than Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness is aged a lot better compared to Halloween 4. It's also, well, I mean, we're we're saying this based on, like, what we've watched on Blu-ray, and that's only as good as what the company coming out with it does. Um, I mean, I guess you could get technical. If you want to get really technical and say what's better, that's all subjective. Mm. Uh, we've had the privilege of watching Prince of Darkness both on Blu-ray and in 35 millimeter. Yes. That we left three quarters of the way through because we were falling asleep at 3.30 in the morning. Yeah, I mean, I like, still apologize profusely for that. No, it's okay. I couldn't stay awake and the plot no longer made sense. <laughs> I mean, okay, so what we, we went to a, at the end of uh, the summer uh, here on Long Island, there, there was, we brought this up before. Or at least I brought it up before on the podcast. There is a company called Retro Picture Show, where this small promotion here on Long Island shows uh, horror movies, usually in double feature form, all on 35 millimeter film. That's the one thing they strive for is to have that kind of immersive experience where we see have that original viewing experience where you yes. see it the way audiences saw it. And that that's 24 frames per second shine through a light on 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 the screen rather than zeros and ones being projected onto the screen, and. At the end of the summer, there was the Pay to Get Out Horror-a-thon, where it was, a, it was six movies in total, five that we knew going in, and one was the um, 
hidden movie. Yes. We didn't know it was going to be. You had to stay there. It went from like 10 at night till 10 in the morning, and we right. did not make it. No, and like even. I got up at like 7 o'clock that morning, which I shouldn't have done. No, and I, and I took. I made sure to take off that Sunday because I usually work Sundays um, for my second job. And we were all gung ho for it. But I think what really took the. Because first one, the first movie was. Child's Play 2. Child's Play 2. Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery. Trailer that, Apocalypse. Which was just two hours of Grindhouse trailers strung together, which I think that's what took the wind out of us. I think they spaced it out that way just because they didn't want to put all the all the the movies everyone wants to see at the front, put all the shit at the end, even though people were, were bringing pillows and blankets and coolers. Which we should have done. Yeah. Food for thought for next year. And so when we got to Prince of Darkness, uh, like... Both of us were just like, uh, uh, uh. I still look great though. Yeah, and anyway, that's the thing. And so, McCready and Copper realizes there is one body still there at the Norwegian camp that the Norwegians tried to burn. After we see the block of ice that's been kind of thawed out at one point, I wonder if they put an electric blanket on this one. And just to see, that's how they got the alien out of it. That's a thing, original thing reference. Yeah. We'll, um, we'll talk about comparisons to it. Right. And so they bring the body back to their camp, and that's when the dog that, that, that was chased there is acting kind of funny. He's watching people from a distance. Uh, we At one point, we see him enter a room. We see him, like, stalk the hallway, enter a room. Look out the window at what's going on. Like, like you know that this dog is, like, aware of what's going on. Right. And fools like them, they let it roam around. I mean, I, I guess they want to uh, be nice to it since they think it's a normal dog that's just been chased in a helicopter by crazy Norwegians. Yeah. I mean, like, because you want, like... Whenever somebody tries to hurt an animal, or especially a dog, like you, you automatically become protective of it. And of course, you want like Mikas to Sukas and just let the dog just walk around the camp, whatever the hell it wants. Which makes you wonder, like, you think, you think of that like, from the other dog's perspective there in the kennel, like, what the fuck, man? Why does that one get to walk around all day, and we we're stuck in here? Mm. And so we get to see what the body is that they bring back from the Norwegian camp. And it looks like a Picasso body art. It just like these. Two beings like meshed together. We don't. It looks know. like a sculpture. It is. It, it pretty much is like a sculpture, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that survived. I mean, like um, that that they're at least in the terror thing. Terror takes shape. Um, documentary that was on the original DVD and that's been poured over to the Blu-ray. That sculpture still exists, at least up until the early 2000s. And I wonder who has that. If a Universal has that, or if uh, Rob Bottin, who did a lot of the special effects this movie, he has the. Original sculpture, because like, how awesome would it be to go to a Put horror museum? Exactly for Halloween, <laughs> people are like, "Fuck that!" I'm not going up to ring the doorbell for trick or treat. Um, and I love in the commentary track during this moment where it's like, it's it's five, it's six people standing around a table trying to outact each other by out acting disgusted by this, and everybody's coughing and wheezing, just like, "Oh God, it's disgusting! I can't look at it." And the dogs just sitting there, just staring at them, like, "Hmm." <laughs> um, and we get to see more uh, banality that's going on at the uh, at the facility where we see Palmer uh, start smoke a joint with uh, 
I was like, all, all these guys like seem to have some kind of substance abuse problem from being locked up. They're all heavy drinkers. The one guy, Palmer, he's a raging pothead. Yes. He pulls out like a Cheech and Chong blunt. I mean, the thing was freaking ridiculous, There's, man. There's like booze in every freaking scene. So, I mean, like, well, that's a big stark difference between the original where everyone's more military and disciplined. This, I, I, I don't, is this even a military thing or is it just like government research? I think government research, but then again, how would you justify the fact that they would have flamethrowers at this facility? Melt ice. They're in the Antarctic. If they're researching something, they got to melt ice. They got to... If things start to freeze over, they got to keep them warm, I guess. Huh. Because that's a question that's always bothered me for years. But... I, I feel like if they went into the research aspect more, we'd understand why. Mm. Because, like, if they're actually looking for something, say they're digging for, for some fossilized shit. Right. You need flamethrowers to get in there. If uh, something is frozen horribly, you know, if some aspect of the, uh, some area of the camp that you haven't really had to do much to freezes over mm. or if there's a big snowstorm you got to clear out snow off of stuff right you know l- very gently use the flamethrower N- and not my thermite would just blow everything up and ruin things the flamethrower makes a better snow shovel than a snow shovel i guess that's if the fair. snow piles up too much just go out there with the flamethrower and melt it um and like going back to what you're saying about like substance abuse problems i mean it would take a certain kind of person in order to agree to go to antarctica for months at a time. I know people, real scientists do that. And I know there is a, some team that's in Antarctica, and I don't know if it's Halloween or the beginning of every time they go out there for extended periods of uh, research, they'll watch The Shining and The Thing back to back. Which. Movies about isolation. Yeah, and, and I did, I've done that double feature once while I was up in Oswego during a, a terrible winter storm. I can remember that next time, because we get like 20 feet of snow here now, because the world's fucked up. So yeah, yeah. I'll we'll do that next time. I'll watch The Shining and the thing. I just walk my house with an axe. <laughs> Limping. Give me the bat, Marge. Give me the bat. Give me the bat, 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 bat. <laughs> um... Like, how fucked up would it be, like, if Paul were to smoke through all of his shit really early into the research? It's like, oh, well, now, now I have nothing to do. We've still got three more months of winter, buddy. Yeah, seriously. And the groundhog so sh- shadow. So. <laughs> <laughs> you're, really, you're really up Shit's Creek now. You're up Shit's Creek, and Shit's Creek froze over. <laughs> um, and so Clark is ordered to bring the dog, that the, the rescue dog, into the kennel. And then we... He's the guy who looks after the dogs. Yeah. Each guy has their own role here. You don't. We don't go horribly into it much. You got Windows, who's like the communications guy. Yeah. Uh, Copper's obviously... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Copper's the doctor. Well, Bennings is kind of like this... He dealt with like the barometer and stuff like that. So I guess he's kind of... Deal with the... Uh, Weather... He's your meteorologist. Meteorologist. Uh, Palmer the, is a second uh, helicopter pilot. He's the he- primary helicopter pilot. Um, Charles, I'm not too sure. He's Keith David, and he's just badass. Yeah, he's your resident badass. Yeah, uh, uh, Knowles is obviously the cook. Um, Norris is another part of research as well as Fuchs or Fucks in the words Fuchs. of Fuchs. A- in the words of ABGN, it's Fuchs. Fuchs. Fred Fox. Um, and so we get the famous kennel scene, where the dog, the, the rescue dog, turns out to be not a dog whatsoever. They lock it up in the kennel. The other dogs start freaking out, and the thing finally sheds its dog coil. Yeah. It sheds its parents. We discovered why the Norwegians were trying to kill this thing. It's actually some kind of alien life form. Uh, while at the Norwegian camp investigating and, you know, look at all the videos, they found this solid block of ice in the barn, which is a callback to the original thing mm-hmm. where when they 
find the flying saucer. They pull, they blow it up like fools. Cause, Accidentally, yeah. Well, this was the 50s, so explosions, blowing things up was pretty much all we knew. Which was which is funny because one of the things that was part of the thing from another world was it was obviously commenting on scientists and America after Hiroshima. Yeah. And obviously – they use a bomb, and they kind of, they use a bomb at one point in the movie, and it kind of blows back in their faces. And in in retrospect, and the person who's the scientist who's pushing for prog- progression for certain things, he was your typical med scientist. Almost, yeah, where and it jeopardizes science, the team. science over everything. Right, and and so like, the, and then of course they they find a black device with their version of the thing in it, but that's where um, the vegetable monster. Is the one the bad guy yeah. saying it out loud is kind of silly. Not thinking about it. Well, here's the thing: in, in, in the thing from another world, the, 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 we do see what the creature actually is. In the thing, Carpenter's the thing. We don't see its original form if it even has one. We know it is a single cell organism that bond, bonds with other cells of organisms and literally copies them perfectly. Yeah, we never see what its true form or its original form was. This thing we know it's a big monster, but they describe it. It's phys- they describe its physiology the same way vegetables work, where it basically plants itself and reproduces that way. Mm. Um, it does it does come off as like we're saying it's a big vegetable, like really they're fighting fucking bushroot from Darkwing Duck. <laughs> but it's not. It's just the way it exists. It exists very similar to vegetables on Earth, but it's a big hulking walking thing uh, played by. The actor who played Marshall Dillon in Gunsmoke. Yeah, James Arnest. He was a he was a big monster. And, and that, that blew my mind. I realized, like, oh my god, the Marshall is the the guy who's a villain in this. But in the, in the thing, the monster is kept in a blo- is preserved in a block of ice. Apparently, it was jettisoned or got away from the ship somehow, froze, and they found it, brought it back, put it in the barn, and it thawed out and came out similar to the thing from another world, where except the the dumbass in there. With them, he doesn't want to look at it, so he throws a blanket over it. Obviously, not realizing it's an electric blanket, and inadvertently melts it. Melts it. Yeah, and I love how like as soon as the monster comes out, he immediately just pulls his gun and starts firing at bam, it. Bam, 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 and does nothing. Yeah, yeah and, and I love how like he he leaves the room, he runs into a, an adjacent room, and he still got his gun pointed out in front of him. And like, I think the captain has to take it away from him, like, give me that guy. Essentially, pointing it as a superior officer. Yeah. But- uh, Oh, That's on. where the, the comparisons do still continue. Like, this thing, in the thing from another world, it can reproduce itself the way, very much the way plants do. Um, when they were able to cut its arm off at one point, but the arm was still moving, it was able to grow a new one back. It can still reconstruct itself. That, I feel, carries over heavily into the thing mm-hmm. where you see uh, in the infamous blood test scene later on where they uh, heat up a sample of each other's blood and... If you are not infected, it'll just, you know, just bubble a little bit because it's hot. But if you are infected, the th- it will fully form out because each cell is its own organism. organism. And so you have, like, the thing that's possessed people, but now you have, like, this this blood sample that's also its own thing. So it technically can reproduce in its own way. Mm-hmm. But uh, – and then so – Rob Bottin was known for – he was the head person part of the special effects for this movie, and he worked like seven days a week for several months. And it got to the point that he was living at the studio, and he had to be hospitalized because he worked himself to so much exhaustion. And so Stan Winston, taking upon the designs of Rob Bottin, he did the kennel scene. And so I always, I always wrote down like it's Stan Winston's kennel scene, even though it's Rob Bottin's like conception and everything. And I remember my first year as girlfriend, I ended up watching this and like – 
uh, at her house, and her mother came down and sat down with us to watch it with us, and I'm like, oh, well, this is going to make or break at this scene and see how that goes. And I'm like, and I feel like that's how, that should be the barometer of any relationship if you're a horror fan. If you could sit through the thing. If you could sit through the thing, and if, if she still wants to see, with the, see you or he wants to see you, I think that person is a keeper. So the, the, the thing starts to assimilate all the dogs. Clark comes back into the kennel after hearing all the, the ruckus that's going on. Runs the fuck out, grabs everybody, tells them to bring flamethrowers. Yeah. They open up with guns at first and does jack shit. And one of the moments I, I love, and it's a, an image from this movie I'll always remember, when the thing um, sprouts arms out of its back, punches a hole through the ceiling, and it pull, pulls itself up. Can do better pull-ups than me. Yeah. It, the, 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 thing, the things in the foreground... Kurt Russell's in the background, and you see, like, the tentacles, like, articulating as it goes up the wall, like, it is unintentionally funny, but it's something that I always remember, and of course, um, Keith David comes in with the flamethrower, and he's kind of in shock of what he's seeing right now, and the thing's body opens up even more, and this weird flower version of the dog's tongue comes shooting at him, and he eventually sets fire to the fucker, and finally kills it, or what we believe that it kills it, and... The following scene, after everybody's reeling from what the hell that just happened, we just saw a creature sprout out of a dog. We see Blair doing an autopsy and then gives his... Blair is Wilfred Brimley. Yes, Mr. Uh, Diabetes commercials that you mm-hmm. saw for years. We don't see him that often anymore. Um, it looks very different in this movie compared to now. Yeah, you... A big bushy mustache was not here. Yes. Um, I think that's what threw me off. And the fact that he has glasses in this. He's one of the lead scientists. And just like the scientist in the thing, he slowly goes crazy. In the thing from another world, he slowly goes crazy. Right. And there was one theory of how Blair became... Well, spoilers, Blair gets infected at the end, and we see that he becomes a thing. At one point in this scene, when he's giving his his autopsy uh, notes to everybody that's in the room, he has a pencil in his hand with a little, like, an attachable eraser on the, on the back of it. He touches the thing at one point. And then he, he, in the middle of the conversation, he does bring that eraser up to his lips. Some people have, have thought, like, since one cell could theoretically take over an entire being, some people uh, hypothesize that this is how he got infected. It just took a long time rather than an entire simulation happening rather quickly. Who knows? It could just be speculation right there. And I wonder if, like, since Halloween is, like, very... It's all, pretty much bloodless, but just a, a little bit of blood. Maybe about the same amount of blood you actually see in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like less than one bottle of ketchup. Yeah. And then you see something like this. What do you think is more effective? Uh, this is a case of apples and oranges, fish and fowl, because Halloween's about, you know, a guy going around stalking people. This is about a monster from another world that literally overtakes your body and changes you. Mm-hmm. The, the two things are completely opposites. They are right. oil and water. Yeah. I, I feel they're both effective. And the, the special effects, we've been talking about before, but i got to give the ultimate applause to uh, anyone involved with the special effects in this yeah. movie. They are – this is pre-CG, everything practical, mm-hmm. but these effects are, like, stunning. Yes, Good in in the grossest, most visceral way that lets you know that, like, this is something... This is nightmare fuel, basically. Totally. Looking at this shit. You're watching pure nightmare fuel here. Um, Very bloody, very gory. The the thing, like, when, when it's imitating a body of an actual 
organism creature, like we talked about the dog scene, it will split apart in a very realistic and gory fashion. Like mm-hmm. the skin on the dog's face splits apart, then the skull breaks off. It's it just very gripping visually. It, it it makes you fearful in that way that this is something completely of another world, whereas Halloween is about the suspense of someone stalking, a human stalking you. Right. I mean, like, the, always the idea is to, like, if you... And you never know when he's going to strike. Exactly. That you should always keep the monster in the shadows. You should never see the face of true evil. However, if you can show them something unforgettable, do it. I mean, like, that's why you, even, like, the first, like, I'll bring up Alien later on in the movie, I mean, later on in the review. I mean, like, even the Xenomorph, you barely see in the very first Alien. You see glimpses of him up until maybe, like, the final, the very end. In a way, that kind of is, like, the combination of these two concepts. Right. Where you have something of another world that, you know, is terrifying to you, that is going to, that is disgusting and going to get you, but this one... Ba- the, the the xenomorph based on how it's designed is something that lurks in the shadows and attacks you. Right, and so following uh, the autopsy, and they realize based upon the um, the Norwegians' um, findings, they realize where the saucer uh, crash landed. So, McCready, Norris, and I forget I forget I think it's Palmer. No, I mean, no, it wasn't Palmer, but somebody else. What goes with them uh, to the spacecraft, and that's where we see all these beautiful. Uh, matte paintings of the alien spacecraft there in Antarctica. Inside. What? They didn't go inside the damn thing. No. I mean, then again, like, how would you make it unique? It would just be, I mean, how many space... Well, you could have done, given some kind of answer to what this thing is, was it, um, a, was it being transported and it crashed? Because I remember there was actually an episode of um, the old X-Men cartoon from the 90s. Mm-hmm. Where uh, Lady Deathstrike and the Reavers found, was it the Reavers or the Ravagers? Her her team. I think it's Ravagers. I don't know, but um, her group that lived in the sewers found a crashed spacecraft, and in it was a monster that fed on pure energy, and it could take you over. Um, later, when the X Men find it, Professor Xavier examines it, and it turns he sees like a broken tube, and it turns out it was a warning to keep this thing contained. You could have put something in there like that. Right. Where this thing was being, you know, transported, and you could have found like found other bodies or whatever of aliens, but the, and some kind of broken vessel with some alien language, mm-hmm. and they could have said, "Was this a warning? Were they, were they saying don't open this? Were they transporting it? Was this thing running the show? You know, mm-hmm. that would I think it would have been interesting, but the movie doesn't suffer without it. No, I mean it's just like it's just because we're so enthralled with the story that we want more. That's what Carpenter's good at. He's good at making you want fucking more. Because yeah, all his movies end on cliffhangers for the most part. I mean, other than like Assault on Precinct 13, like all of his movies end on something that could be go on further and further. Like even the, the Fog like does that. Not so much Escape from New York. I mean, it could, but it's pretty decisive that Snake Plissken got the last laugh. Yeah, I mean, uh, Big Trouble in Little China has the same ending. Uh, Prince of Darkness ends with like the end of the world. Uh, in the Mouth of Madness does the same thing. Um... Christine, like, even the car, went to, it's scrolled up into a cube, it kind of moves at the last second. Um, and stay tuned, everybody, Christine review coming. Um, and so, and I'm thinking of, um, now, now I'm kind of enthralled with that idea with... Uh, what uh, was this alien yeah, doing and, on this oh, ship? Oh, now it? I remember. Because uh, no, you think of, uh, in the original Alien, and what uh, really Scott's original idea for this ship, that it was... 
a battleship, and the cargo were those eggs, and that they the that they were weapons of like of destruction to be brought upon whatever species they came a part of. But that's being torn apart by Ridley Scott himself. Yeah, Grandpa needs a nap. He needs some warm milk and a nap. And he needs Damon Lindelof to stay as not as his caretaker. Uh, I mean. Who would have thought your elderly grandfather would fall in with a bed crowd? Here's the, sh- the funny thing is that Ridley Scott will, like, he'll put out, he'll always put out movies. However, every 10 years he has a fucking knockout. Every 10 years he'll have a knockout. But he already had his this decade. It was The Martian. We have to deal with another, like, five years of shit now. What's, 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 the, what's the knockout? We get knocked out by watching it? <laughs> we feel like we've been, we've been punched in the skull Ma- repeatedly. Mama said knock you out. I have a concussion every time I, from me slamming my head against the wall. <laughs> um, so McCready and, I, and the, the, the other two re- return back to the camp and report their findings of it. And the Keith Davis is like, I don't have to deal with this any voodoo bullshit. Uh, this voodoo bullshit. And like, and that's when we see Blair start uh, crunching numbers of how long it would take for a simulation. So, like, after first contact, twenty-seven thousand hours until uh, population. So, three years, a little over three years. That's the numbers of how long it would take for and the thing to take over the entire planet. Unless you Resident Evil to it and use nukes. That's true. You just blow up Raccoon City. <laughs> and didn't like. How did like how did that how did that ending how does that ending play out in Resident Evil Two? Like I know nukes are sent there, but like were people like oh look there's safety coming and all of a sudden it just gets nuked or how? well the, it, it's two separate endings based on Resident Evil Two and Three which happen generally at the same time but, right uh, off the top of my head I don't remember because it's been a really long time but um, you pretty much get every individual character's reactions and you see the nukes and like stills just flying over the heads of zombies. Gotcha. And then boom. It's kind of like how Return of the Living Dead does the same thing where the, in the, the the military container that has the zombies in it, it says call this number if uh, is, if any problems. They call the military and all of a sudden they just nuke the town that the zombies are in because that's the only way they'll be able to deal with them. I mean, That's probably how it would go if the, if the thing got to civilization. They just nuke it. Yeah. Unless if, unless they were fighting the aliens from uh, Independence Day, then, then the nukes wouldn't work. Or the aliens from Alien vs. Predator Requiem, and then they nuke it. The, the less we talk about that movie, the happier we'll be. <laughs> yes, good point. Um, I'm just going to stick my head in the boiler right now when it turns on. <laughs> just sit there and just wait till then. <laughs> um, so they decide, uh, Blair says, like, we got to isolate the bodies from the initial attacks, and so they hide in the rec room. And Bendings is the last one to be in the room with it. Uh, Fuchs brings uh, McCready outside to talk to him and saying that Blair's starting to crack up after looking over his notes. Um, Windows goes in to find out where Bendings is, and that's when we see Bendings start to get be assimilated. Uh, we hear Windows drop a pair of keys, which may come up later. I'll bring, I'll bring that point up later. Uh, McCready and Fuchs decide to go back in and plan to detain Blair. And he's gone. And, and Banks is gone. Fuchs, uh, Windows comes and grabs him. They run out into the snow after him. And that's when we see half-assimilated Bennings. He's got big claw hands because he wasn't fully assimilated. He tried to get away, so they all surround him and burn him. And it's like, how would you react? To, like, it's one to see one of the dogs to be assimilated. But all of a sudden, your friend is now one of them. 
Well, judging by the amount of booze and solitude that they have consumed and experienced, uh, respectively, they seem to have no problem with lighting his ass up. I mean, like, they were a little off their rocker to begin with, so, I mean, they, I feel like they handled it the best way they could. Yeah. Hey, I love the joke that on the commentary track they make, um, because they, they knock over a can of uh, gasoline and they pour, that surrounds the, uh, the thing, and then McCready drops a flare and it sets it ablaze. Any other movie, it would have blown up that. That little container. It's still been funnier if it did anyway. Like, oh, we got it. Kaboom. That's how they all die. The, the movie's 40 minutes long. Well, it would have taken them all out. Well, no. Uh, uh, Blair was still Blair was still there. Blair was still there. And he he was, would have been the Blair witch. Oh. You can't hog all the puns, goddammit. <laughs> but speaking of Blair, it turns out he's finally lost his fucking shit. Destroyed the helicopter, and he's starting to and he's starting to take out the radio room. And you had a string of jokes for this moment that I I couldn't stop laughing at. They were all very wrong, and I won't say them in public. Ah! Uh, but so Wilbur Brimley is starting to lose his shit, and he's taking an axe to all the radio equipment. No dog's getting a thousand miles on the coast. It don't wants to be one of them. It wants to be us. And he's taking his axe to it. And Windows is kind of useless in the scene, just kind of knocked down to the floor. Like like Windows was right now, the, the operating <laughs> system, it's kind of useless. Uh, yet all Macs have a little bit of Windows in them. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the funny thing. They call McCready Mac, so we have Mac and Windows yeah. in the movie. And Mac couldn't save Windows later on. No, anyway. Mac, <laughs> Mac, Mac allowed Windows to die later. Because Steve Jobs would let Bill Gates die if he had the chance. Yeah, I don't know about that. No, but uh, for the sake of comedy, let's say yes. Uh, in this moment, in the scene when the, the rest of the team is trying to subdue Blair, because he is um, carrying a six-shooter on him. And he's using the same sound effects from uh, that Donald Pleasance's six shooter had yeah, from Halloween yeah. Two. The seven shooter he had <laughs> in the beginning of Halloween Two. He pulls off seven shots with a six shot re- revolver. Yeah, but it's the same sound effect. Exactly. Which is not the same as in the original Halloween. No, because it was, I think it's Universal um, stock library sounds. Probably. Um, and Keith David like had broken his hand because uh, uh, like, I was shot in the be- early beginning of the production or at the, at the time, and so Keith David's hiding his hand like he's hiding like, his right hand during that scene, which is really funny. And they have a glove on him, and it's spray painted the same color as his, and it's really really ridiculous. And Blair takes an axe to a folding table, and they all tra- they all bum rush him and beat the shit out of an old man and lock him up in the bunker outside. They lock his ass up good. Like, if you, that's what you would do with a crazy grandpa. Uh, if he was trying to kill me, I'd probably kill him. If he was trying to kill me while a monster is on the loose that is infecting people, I probably would not be happy until he was dead. You, would have gotten, he, you wouldn't have kept him alive. You would have killed him. If, he, if, this monster can, if this monster can infect people and is trying to kill us and he's trying to kill me, it doesn't take much to put two and two together. So I probably would off his ass. Which is four. Yes, you can. <laughs> congratulations, you can add. Congratulations. I'm sorry if that's subtracted from the conversation. That's subtracted from my existence. <laughs> I will never get that moment of my life back. Thank you. <laughs> As I revel. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm just reveling in the pain I caused you. I mean... I will, it's, it's a good thing we only see each other once a week because I think I just take too much time off your 
a mind and body. You just... Yeah, but the more time you take, the less I have to deal with this. <laughs> so if we see each other every day, I'll die sooner, and then I'll be freed sooner. <gasps> wow. <laughs> wow, that, that hurt. Uh, okay. From laughter or uh, uh, emotionally? <laughs> Both. Um, and so they put uh, Blair out in the, ca- in the little fucking shack outside the main camp, lock him in. And then so when the team decides, like, all right, maybe we should uh, determine how one person from another, uh, how do we know who's a thing and who's not? Uh, the doctor says, like, hey, if we can do a blood test. We can uh, use uncontaminated blood to see uh, who's who. They said, all right, let's do that. And they all had blood samples on hand for – why do they have blood samples on hand? Unless that's, like, that's, like, for, for – their own transfusions in case they get injured or something. Uh, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, I mean, there's no, I mean, I, I don't know, I, I don't mumbles. I don't know why else you would have that on hand. Science. Just science. Just, just science. Science. But apparently the blood samples have been broken into and consumed. Yeah, and then we find out that somebody, the, the lock was not broken, and somebody used the key. Now, we did hear a pair of keys get dropped on the floor when windows left bendings were being assimilated. Maybe those keys are picked up, or... Well, this, is, this, importantly, is the part where the paranoia begins to take over them. This is what was missing heavily from um, the thing from another world, is that in the thing from another world, most of these people band together and stick with the right idea, except for the mad scientist. They, he's usually the one that they have to fight. Mm-hmm. In this, they all are turning on each other left and right, because you never know who this thing is going to copy. You, you, you don't know. So, I mean, and they're in the middle of the Antarctic, you know. It's cabin fever already. It's probably why they drink so much. Mm-hmm. So you got all these elements just overtaking them. And they start getting paranoid and getting into fights, getting into legit fights with each other. Totally. And, it, like, at the point where they're all, like, ready, they're at, like, they're ready to throw punches at each other. And Windows says, fuck this, runs down a hallway and grabs a shotgun in order to defend himself. That's when Gary, the captain of the group, pulls his shooter on him and is able to talk Windows down from, um, arming himself and that's when everybody starts to question gary's kind of uh, leadership and if he should be trusted because he's the owner of the keys yeah and so he could he's a prime suspect of the person who could who tampered with the blood, blood in the first place it's a very simple formula everybody's a suspect this needed jamie kennedy <laughs> like it shouldn't be jamie kennedy it should have just been the character of randy in there just superimposed into the movie to make it funnier um, and so they decide to, they burn the blood and we have this scene where everybody's out in the snow at night and I love it because it's McCready addressing the rest of the team and McCready's framed in a single and everybody else is in a group shot. And of course, like McCready's speech here is that I know I'm human and if you were all the things, if you were all the same thing, you would have just attacked me. That means some of you are still human. And that means the thing is hiding in some of us. And the camera pans across the group as he's having this conversation, just to showing... Who we- is the father of Eric Cartman? Is it <laughs> Jeff? Officer Bob Brady? A 1989 Denver Broncos? It's basically that. Like, who is... The, it's the whodunit now. Totally. And they decide to tie up Clark, Gary, and the doctor. Because- well, before this happens, we have... Um, who is it that went outside when he... And then... Uh, and burn himself? Fuchs. Yeah, but that happens later. It happens after this. No, before they, they tie them up. It happens before, because uh, McCready goes out there to investigate, gets locked out. 
No, 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 because they tie him up once and shoot him up with morphine. And Fuchs decides then has that conversation. Because then McCready has a conversation with the tape recorder. Fuchs is doing some kind of experiments. And that's when Fuchs goes out, outside. Okay, yes, yes, yes. But, um, yeah, and, like, Fuchs is, like, it seems like the only person who's, like, still trusts McCready at this point. And, but, but at the same time, we see earlier on in the movie, we have Knowles saying somebody ripped up their clothes and left it in the kitchen garbage can. So somebody's obviously simulated at this point. Um, so McCready has this kind of, con- almost like, not even a deathbed confession that he has with the tape recorder of saying what's going on right now. Fuchs is doing experiments, and then when McCready enters, he's like, he has like a jar, a, a beaker of something, probably sulfuric acid, because that's what I would use to throw at somebody. And the paranoia is really setting in here. Now, if you were put into that situation, how would you handle it? A uh, gunshot to the head. I'd take the coward's way out. Really? Yes. I would not want to live to be assimilated by this thing, to have the people I'm with turn on me. And have to figure out a way to kill me, or to have the headlines be, guy from Long Island brings about the end of the world. So are you just worried about the headlines that you're responsible for the apocalypse? Well, I mean, if there is an afterlife, I'd have to sit there and watch that. <laughs> like, this is bullshit. I didn't do it, man. It's not my fault! St. Peter would be just making jokes at me. He's like, alright, calm down, calm down. You already brought the end of the world. It's not the end of the world, Mike. <laughs> it's not fair! I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> he did the thing would assimilate him and spit him back out. Unclean. Oh, man. It's kind of like that joke uh, I love in um, the Guns Dying of Alcohol Poisoning from Assimilating. <laughs> <laughs> the joke in uh, Guns N' Roses' music video of uh, You Could Be Mine, where the Terminator runs up with the meets up with uh, the band. And the, his target assistant falls on guns on axe of roads, and, and the text just says "waste of ammo." <laughs> <laughs> that's what the thing would do when it came to that person. Anyway, so well now all the ammo would absorb into Axel Rose's belly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like the T one thousand. Um, so the I power. Talk. <laughs> yeah, the, it's okay. Uh, the few uh, power goes out in the facility at one point. Fuchs is. Sees somebody in his area, runs out after him, and he finds a torn up piece of shirt, and it's addressed to McCready. It's his clothes. We smash cut to McCready addressing the rest of the team, trying to find out where the hell Fuchs is. So at this point, the audience thinks, like, oh, Kurt Russell, who we thought was the hero of this movie, is probably the bad guy. And he leads a team out into the snow. They find Fuchs' body fried. Presumably, I presume he killed himself. I guess, because the person he trusted, he thought was untrustworthy. And he said, if I'm going to die here, I'm going to die by my own hand. Yeah, I but, would have been Fuchs. But you would have shot yourself. You wouldn't have burned yourself alive with a fucking... Well, uh, probably because he knew he didn't want um, the, the thing assimilating him. And while leave anything left. Ooh, that's rough. Buddhist monks do it all the time. Aren't they the ones that do the self-immolation for protest? Who's the monks that do self-immolation? I think you're right. Okay. I'm, I'm just I'm just thinking of uh, the Vietnam protest. Ah, yes. uh, the ones where like the man's in the street and he's uh, uh, ablaze. And at that point, Fuchs has probably lost his fucking marbles completely. So yeah, and all this. Um, and so McCready uh, says to because he's with uh, Nalls and Windows at this point, uh, tells Windows to go back inside, wait for us. Him and Nalls are gonna go check his cabin. 
because somebody left the light on inside because he claims that he turned it off when he left there yesterday. 45 minutes go by, Nalls returns without McCready because he believes McCready to be the thing after finding torn clothes in his uh, shack. So they start to fortify the camp to keep McCready out. And we see Norris starts to have some kind of pains, and it looks like in his chest at one point. McCready breaks in, grabs dynamite and a flare, and looks like the crazy homeless person you try to avoid contact in when you're on when you're on the train. He's basically now, now become the med bomber that says another step closer and I'll blow this whole place up. Totally. He's just only paired with a Rick Rubin beard at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love him always holding the flare and the dynamite. The fuse is so close. He's like, back off. He looks more like Way Jeff Bridges in King Kong. <laughs> Yo, man, don't shoot the ape. He's the, he's the dude in this. <laughs> that was magic just the dude, like... He's white Russian. He's actually plastic explosives. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, of kind of weird things, man, that we have to deal with the... Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the thing, it's just, uh, it's kind of a bummer, man. Um, uh, no, more like Tommy Chong. <laughs> what are you doing in Canada? Um, Norse and, um, Norris tries to do McCready to no avail and Norris has a heart attack. They bring him into, uh, medical and untie the doctor who's somehow lucid enough after being shot with morphine to try and revi- revive. Defibrillate? I wouldn't, yeah. I mean, would you trust him? Like, oh, the guy on morphine with a defibrillator? No. <laughs> Check this out. <laughs> oh, that woke me up. That was cool. He's all high. <laughs> and, and, and we entered probably the most famous scene of this movie. Would you say? Um, the beginnings of. Yeah. And so... Defibrillate him once, nothing. They try again, bam! His chest opens up and chews the doctor's hands off. And I love when it, when it cuts to that moment where it's a low angle of, we see the doctor lean back and his arms are fucking off. His stump arms. That, 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 were, that was actually a person with no arms with a mask made up of the doctor. Oh. And it fell back. You see, handicapped people uh, getting roles in movies. Everything. You say they couldn't. I know, but you say that I hate handicapped people in movies. You do, because you love Friday the 13th Part 2 when they fall down the hill in a wheelchair. I would have laughed at whoever fell down the flight of stairs. That movie doesn't care if he's in a wheelchair. What if they were quadriplegic and they flew out? <laughs> see, look, you're laughing at stairs at this. So you think they have some role in, in life that's just better when they die. Is that what you're saying? No! <laughs> so you can you have use if you have no arms, but if you're in a wheelchair, then you should just be hitting the head with a knife. No, and I'm not down the staircase. No, I'm just saying because that moment's obviously played for comedy. It has to be. It's played for absurdity. I think, I think your reaction is to laugh. <laughs> yeah, you you find it's objectionable. But I find it that funny. Well, I just love pointing that out because it's pretty <laughs> sick and depraved that you find it that funny. It's like, I mean, hell, I mean, like when we saw when Retro Preacher Show showed that on the big screen, uh, I think that was their first program was Friday Thirteenth Parts One and Two. It wasn't their first, but we went to it. You sure, it wasn't their first. I don't, I don't know what their first was, but I I was the loudest person what, in the theater laughing. At I don't that. know what their first and our first was. I'm, I'm pretty sure that was their first. Really. I'm pretty sure. I mean, if you want to look it up in the meantime. But uh, um, so the thing is chewed off the arms of the doctor, and all of a sudden another head spot sprouts out from the stomach of 
Norris, and it's Norris's head with tentacles and everything. And McCready, now armed with a flamethrower, gets everybody out of the room and sets the fucker ablaze. And not knowing it's because there's this huge wall of flame separating him from this, the rest of the, uh, Norris's body. The head of Norris falls off. And, and crawls away. It, and crawls, sprouts spider legs and crawls away. Um, they wait a few seconds and they eventually put the body out. And the spider head, spider head, spider head, does whatever a spider head can. Can it swing from a web? They can't, because it's a spider head. Anyways, continuing with our movie. <laughs> and because it probably has the most famous line from this movie is when Palmer uh, rec- realizes that there's a head crawling away, and he says, you got to be fucking kidding. And McCree sets it ahead. And I love, we were watching it, because have, you have surround sound in your room, that we hear the little tap, 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 tap of the feet of the head crawl away. Go across the sound system yeah, was really cool. funny. Um, which goes to inspire the second most famous scene from this movie, is the blood test scene. So now they finally get serious with this whole blood test thing. They, they basically tie each other, begrudgingly agree to tie each other up. Uh, they get their fingers cut into bleeding the little Petri dishes with their names on it. And McCready basically, with the flamethrower, heats up a piece of copper wire and says... This thing is, you know, it is. It each cell assimilates with something with with something else. So each cell is essentially its own living organism. This thing's instinct is to survive. When it's hurt, it will react. Right. So the idea is put this heated copper wire into the petri dish of each other's blood. If it doesn't react, you know they're human. If it does, it wigs out. It's the who whoever it is is the thing. And but before that happens, nobody's willing to agree to be tied up. And Keith David says, like, you're going to have to kill me. Begrudgingly. Yeah. And Keith David gets into his face about it. And McCready shows that he's not fucking around. And that, but at, and one, in the previous scene, before the uh, defibrillator cracked open the chest of Norris, um, probably my favorite shot in the movie is Clark's hand, like, finding the scalpel. And it's a split diopter shot, where it, which means that there's a filter on, on the lens where it shows two uh, places of, of the frame in focus, in his defocus, where we see the scalpel in Clark's hand in the foreground. He sneaks and the, his scalpel out. And McCree's in the background with the flamethrower. And in this scene, before the blood test actually commences, uh, Clark comes at him with the scalpel, and McCree shoots him in the head, showing that he's not he's not messing around here and that he's serious. They tie each other up. The first two they test are now, are now the dead doctor and... Uh, Clark. Clark. They, it turns out they were human, and, and uh, Childs, uh, Keith David, doesn't that fail to mention, you're a murderer. He was human. You're a murderer. Right. Uh, McCready tests himself. He's human, as he said all along. Mm-hmm. Uh, tests his windows. Human. Right. Let's windows go. And then it gets to Palmer. Now, in this scene, and this is something that Dean Cuddy spoke about, is that there's something called the eye light, which means that you have something that's uh, close to or eye level with the an actor and shining into the eyes of the person. And so you get that kind of reflective look in there. Like right now, I can see the lights behind me reflecting in your eyes. You can probably see the fluorescent tube that's behind you reflecting in yes. my eyes. Now, everybody in that scene has eye light except for Palmer. He's top lit, so there's no light falling into his eyes. So he's separated from everybody else in the scene. Another indicator showed that he's not amongst them, or the not one things. of them. It's the little things in filmmaking that matter. Yes. And I love that moment where, like, like McCree's holding it. And it's like, I know you will do it, Gary. We'll do you last. And it cuts to a close-up of Palmer just kind of, like, kind of shrugs. He's like, well, I'm about to be found out. 
dips the the needle into the blood. Palmer's blood freaks out, and then Palmer, I don't know, just explodes out he of it. He starts like seizing and expl- and transforming basically because the thing knows it's been caught. Yeah, and everyone that's still tied up to him because they're all tied together with like the same piece of really long rope. Like, give me, give me the fuck away! Give me the fuck away! Give me the fuck away from this thing! Uh, McCready, his flamethrower, unfortunately, is uh, sputtering a bit. Right. He, he, I don't know if fuel was low or whatnot, but he was having trouble with it. So the second flamethrower that Windows has, he goes for it, but Palmer breaks loose, head splits open, and basically grabs a hold of, of uh, Windows' head and clamps down on it and sort of just... Like a Venus flytrap. Like a Venus flytrap lifts his body off the ground and is, and is, like, eating him head first. So at that point, Mac failed Windows. Mac yeah. failed to save Windows. <laughs> Windows was destroyed and Mac failed to save it. So hey, I love it because, we, like we mentioned before, we're watching it and we have the surround sound system on. We had the volume pretty loud at this point. So it's everybody screaming. The monster's roaring. And Windows, the neighbors think something's going on, and they're probably calling the police. <laughs> at this point, um, window, um, McCready finally gets his flamethrower working, sets Palmer ablaze. Uh, and just like how in the original thing from another plant, thing from another world, where the monster becomes engulfed in flame and then has to burst out of a window or wall to escape the uh, uh, initial attack here, and it's weird how because in John Carpenter's Halloween, we see the characters watching the thing on TV. I think of another world. Think of another world. And Rob Zombie did the same thing in his movie. I don't know why. Why not just have Carpenter's uh, thing on TV? Well, I mean, obviously it's a reference to the original Halloween regardless. Yeah, I mean, but, I think uh, people would get it. I don't know. Maybe Carpenter didn't want the thing in Zombie's Halloween. Who I mean, knows? like, he's made, he's made his feelings um, explicitly clear about Rob Zombie's version of the Halloween. So, um, Palmer goes out, in the, out into the snow, collapses, and I love this moment where McCready throws a piece of diamond to blow it up, and if you watch the footage, there's a really wide shot of Kurt Russell throwing the, like, I don't know if it's like an M80 or whatever, you, at the, at the uh, body, goes off, and you see the concussion, you see the concussion force go through him, and knocks him back into, into the, the wall, wall, and you're like, holy shit! And they're like, well, that's taken care of, but that's when Windows, who we thought is dead. And if this were in smell vision you could smell Kurt Russell shitting his pants when that happened. <laughs> now, the thing in smell vision uh, And that's when Windows comes back. Yeah, now he's been, since he's had his head chewed off, he's pretty much assimilated, beginning to assimilate now. He's wigging out, so he sets his ass on fire. Um... They test the blood of Childs and uh, Childs, and he's good. And they on Nalls, then Childs. And I love it when Keith Davis like, cut me loose, cut me the hell loose, man. And it's just Gary's the only person still left tied to the couch. And it just looks so just sad and defeated, like, oh, all my friends left me here, and I'm stuck here. But then they test his blood. It's normal. And instead of a sigh of relief, he gives us a... I don't want to spend the rest of the winter tied to this fucking chair. <laughs> I mean, well, like, would you? No. I mean, I, I, well, sir, I don't think that that was they were going to do that to you. you, you you're normal. They're not going to keep you tied to this couch anymore. Yeah. I mean, unless you're going to be a dick, but if you're going to be an asshole, we're going to keep you there. And so the third act is fully in full force at this point, and they decide like, um, Gary, uh, Nalls, and McCready are going to go out and test uh, Blair's blood. And Charles is going to stay behind and watch out if Blair comes back without us, burn him. Now, that's a stupid idea to begin with because at this point you should not be – no one should be left alone. No. Because 
if you are away from someone for even a minute, you don't know what is going on with them. If this thing, if the, a piece of it was left behind, because now we've proven it can break itself off, it can assimilate itself into other things, it can spread itself. Right. You don't know what the hell's still there. One, that was a fucking dumb idea. Right. And so the three men go up to the cabin, open the door, and at one point earlier on, they go to check on Blair before they decide on what the hell to do. Um, we see before when Blair was still in the cabin, we see me he's uh, manufactured a noose. He made a noose. He's like, I'm okay. I want to come back inside right now. It's just real dark humor there. And so. And he's trying to be nice. Yes. And so at this time, they go to his cabin he's no longer there and they find there's a secret passageway that underneath under the floorboards the, under the floorboards and he's been building a space saucer uh that like she, a mini flying saucer trying to get out now just imagine wilford brimley flying a saucer to the mainland <laughs> like the jetson sound effect like diabetes as he flies across diabetes <laughs> diabetes diabetes as we say in look the, up rock me diabetes on youtube <laughs> you'll, 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 endless yeah. amounts of joy from that yes um, so they blow up the saucer and decide we're not going to let this thing get uh, frozen again. We're not going to make it out of here, but we're going to make damn sure the thing's not going to get out of here as well. They pretty much uh, come to the conclusion that they ain't getting out of this. No. Like they, they pretty much know they're all going to die, but they're not going to let this thing live. I mean, they, the two of them take it in stride. I thought that would have been like one of them been like, no, man. Like, I, I would have probably put a protest into that. Yeah, yeah, there would have been the private Hudson who just freaks out. 17 days. I don't want to rain on your parade, but we're not going to last 17 hours. They got those things to come back, they come here, and they can come back here before. Shut up! <laughs> this girl lasts longer here with no weapons, no training. So you put her in charge! Uh, R.I.P. Bill Paxton. Yeah. I, I hate to have to say that now. Anyway, so they decide to blow the fuck out of the – blow up the fuck out of the uh, – not, they're not blowing the, the actual yeah, – Blow the monster because I'm sure it, it, we've seen it has many appendages that yes, that, that to be done to. I mean, it, it, that just turns into a hentai porno and you – It's all the <laughs> – La blue thing. <laughs> all your offices are now filled, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you're happy. Um, and so these Molotov cocktails, dynamite, and they're literally blowing up the set as they go. And Childs has disappeared after apparently running out into the snow. looks like he's giving chase or something. Um, they finally go back and down into the basement. And they say, where's the generator? And then I love the moment when Gary turns to McCready and says, it's gone, McCready. Yeah, the power goes out. They find out the generator's been fucked. And <laughs> temperature's steadily dropping. It's night in Antarctica. Um, they, they split up. Bad move. Uh, Gary gets to talk to the hand. To, to set up dynamite and explosives because they want to blow the whole place sky high. Right. Gary uh, runs into Blair, and he gets his face stretched by Blair. Thing Blair. Yeah. Very, like, he pretty much, like, like grips his fingers into his face and, like, pulls the skin, like, fucking taffy. Yeah, and then, like... And drags him down the hall. <laughs> like that. Which, which got a chuckle out of you, which surprised me. Seeing uh, Gary's body and, like, Nulls, we don't see what happens. I'm expecting to see that technique used in beauty parlors very soon. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't see what happens to Nulls. He just disappears. Presumably uh, killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's when McCready's all alone with the one detonator. And he lights uh, one piece of dynamite just in case. The thing flies out from underneath the floorboards. Eats the detonator of the... Uh, 
dynamite that we were initially setting up. And it's it's a Blair monster at this point. And it, before it's we the Blair Witch at this point, <laughs> fully become the Blair Witch. Do you know there was the ending? One of the original endings will like involve the giant version of the Blair Witch as like one of the giant sick figures coming at them out of the woods. Are you serious? Yeah. How the hell would they have filmed that on that budget? Fuck do I know? I mean, I guess you just a long time putting those sticks together and just like just lots of <laughs> lots of uh, twine to, t- to tie all those sticks you together. You see them sitting at the top of trees, controlling it like marionettes. <laughs> Somebody falls out. Ah! Cut! Snaps arm, oh, snaps off one of the arms of the Blair Witch. Uh, anyway, we get to see a little bit of stop motion here of the Blair monster before it reveals itself. And there was, most, there was more footage of the Blair monster in stop motion form. And Carpenter was not a fan of it, so that's why they decided to go for a, few, a full um, creature designed by Rob Bottin. We see it's a Blair monster, and one of the dogs pops out of its chest at one point. Like, like this thing is like the culmination of everything it's assimilated. Like, there's heads popping out, there's the dog head popping out. It's pretty much like a big monster now. It's not just, you know, one thing taking over bodies. Yes. Uh, McCree uh, uh, rolls, does a, uh, tuck, tucks and rolls away. The th- creature roars at him and says, yeah, fuck you too. T- throws a dime at him. Blows up him and the rest of the camp. Whole facility's up in flames now. That's the only thing keeping the- anyone warm. And I love the fact that it cuts to the extreme wide shot and we just see the entire camp just go up in flames. Uh, and McCready survives, collapses down on, I guess... In some she, kind of wreckage. Like, yeah. Like, just for cover, for... And that's when Childs... Shows up. Now, there's been a debate who is a thing at this point. Do we know if McCready is human or not, if or has he been infected somehow? But do you think Childs is a thing at this point? I don't know. Um, if he is, then the thing has certainly smartened up. Because he kind of, the two of them kind of have some playful banter about, oh, are you the thing? Are you the thing? What's going to happen now? Oh, I guess we'll just freeze to death because, like, uh, Childs mentions that, you know, the only thing keeping them warm right now is the fact the whole facility is in flames. Mm -hmm. But that's not going to last. They both pretty much know that they're going to die from, you know, thermal exposure. Well, not thermal. From freezing to death. Right. Duh. (laughs) That they're both going to end up freezing to death. And they have a, it's very, a human awareness and a sort of human humor. To the two of them, where it's like they're just laughing about the good eye, but they're sitting there looking at each other, basically. I, I want to say fingers on the triggers. Yeah. You know, waiting to see who's going to do what. So, for me, if he the thing has gotten childs, it has learned enough to know, let me just wait this shit out mm-hmm. until this guy dies, and then I'll be on my merry way instead of trying to assimilate him. Because um, Mac uh, McCready, he does mention that... You know, all of us, are, with the generators off, all of us are going to freeze to death. This thing will just freeze. It stayed frozen for thousands of years because that's based on the uh, ice it was frozen in they, earlier in the movie. They determined it had been like several thousand years. He basically said this thing will just freeze and go to sleep until someone else finds it, you know? It's like mm. we got to stop it here. So if that really is the case and Childs is infected, I think it, it smartened up and learned enough to just say, all right, let me stop fighting these guys or this one guy that's left. He's gonna. He's not. Doesn't have much longer, and when he's gone, I can plan my next move from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Childs wasn't the thing, then I think he came to the same conclusion that McCready did, which is why he didn't just get pissed off and kill him and say "fuck you" for all the shit you've been doing to me. I think they both understood this is the end mm-hmm. and sort of just laughed it about. And uh, I believe in the original script that 
McCready has a torch in his hand. Like, he still has his hand on Flamethrower when he, at the very end of the movie. So it obviously hints at the fact that he is... Um, he also still does have a pistol and a holster on his uh, on his right hip. Yes, he does. The whole time, so... He had a, he was able to defend himself if need be. Now, some people have pointed out, like, the fact that they've been using Molotov cocktails, that it's probably fuel mixed in with the alcohol in the bottles, and that he gave Childs a bottle to drink from. Presumably, that could have been one of the Molotov cocktails, and how Childs does not react to it, and McCree starts laughing... They says, oh, I know you're one of the things, what have you. But that's grasping at straws. There's many things. Like, it really is open to the fact of you don't know. All you all you know is that it's 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 one of those downbeat endings. Yeah. Cliffhanger downbeat endings where it's like, did they win? And if they did, they're not going to live to see it. Right. And this is the first uh, um, entry into what Carpenter would call his Apocalypse Trilogy, whether it be this, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness, where that the human race is taken out or the these characters are they they present each movie presents the beginning of an apocalypse scenario. Yes. I mean I mean Prince of Darkness is probably the most overt where in the mouth of madness is like we don't know what the hell is exactly true because we know all of this has been kind of presented the reality of a book that's being written by other cre- by creatures from another dimension um, which interestingly enough in the mouth of madness definitely takes a lot of HP Lovecraft and the original story, Who Goes There, by John uh, W. Campbell Jr., is definitely like In the Mountains of Madness, which is an H.P. Lovecraft story, which I could definitely see. And how this creature is and how it's almost undefinable, that's very much like how Lovecraft's writings was. That, like It was so unimaginable that they would drive people crazy. And that's what like even the Cthulhu monster like is like it's just a rough approximation of what that um, Lovecraft is trying to describe. Now, this came out in 1982 and released by Universal. And two weeks prior to this coming out, another alien movie came from Universal, E.T. Now, E.T. was a monster success and the thing wasn't. Now, Oh, this movie got shit on. Yeah, and it, by critics and everything. Now, I wonder if like, something this hard R and this scary... A, I don't know why this was released in the summer. This should have been a fall movie. I don't, it would have been a Halloween time movie. Yeah, I mean, like, what do you think that, like... This was long before the era of just releasing all your shit in January. Yeah. I mean, would that have, would you think that would have helped? I think it would have helped if it were further apart from E.T. Yeah. I think any, I think just being f- as far away from E.T. as possible could have helped. But then again, Universal didn't have that much faith in E.T. That's why they gave so much little money to Spielberg. Like, E.T. had half the budget of this. E.T. was made on $10 million. The thing was made on $20 million. Obviously, that Universal had more confidence in the thing than they did E.T. Probably because of the name recognition. Yeah, and the Carpenter hadn't And the had, Carpenter was a proven success by that point. He had never had a flop at this point. And it's interesting because cause you had Halloween, monster success. You had The Fog, which was not as big a success as Halloween, but still made 20 times his budget back compared to, like, it made like $21 million on a $1 million budget. Escape from New York was also a huge success. Um, Halloween 2, which he wrote, was a big success. Big success, despite its, you know, lukewarm reception. Yeah, which we'll get into later on. Just stay tuned, everybody. Big news coming. Of course. Um, and so, and then this year, in 1982, he has, the thing comes out, it's a critical, it gets Bomb. shit on. <laughs> yeah, and like, Ebert tore it apart, which he later rescinded. 
and said it was not. It gave a glowing review years on. Well, Ebert did say originally that definitely you, this creature was something to be scared of. At least he gave it. I think he gave it two and a half stars. Yeah, but he, he definitely like almost had a redacted review later on in life and, and gave it the proper dues it deserved. Everybody did. That's a big theme of Carpenter's movies is that they're ahead of his time. Is that when it when they were no long when when he was how do how do I phrase this? When his movies began flopping back then, they would later be revered for for being they would be looked back on better than they were when they initially came out. Same thing, so, Big Trouble in Little China, yeah. which has become a, a monster cult movie, which is a bomb for 20th Century Fox. And the reason why I bring up the thing specifically in 1982, because he has this and he produced Halloween 3. His coal becomes diamonds. Yeah. And that's why I think following this, he takes a studio picture where he was not uh, like the Christine was a job for him. It wasn't a passion project. He was a director for hire. Sure, he threw himself into the story. I'm not going to deny that. However, it was like, all right, I need to prove that I'm not just – I need to I need to hit on my hand after those last two that kind of kind of uh, didn't do so well. Even Prince of Darkness and They Live, they were successes, yes, but they would go on to become more renowned amongst his fans of his movies. And so – Another thing that's very important that comes into this point, because in 1981, that's when the first clinical studies started being done for AIDS at the time. Now, I'm pretty sure that was probably not on the minds of people at the time, or at least in the making of this movie. But it is kind of curious, or serendipitous, of how that kind of, like, paranoia of, like, how you could get what was being dubbed at the time the gay flu, in quotation marks, and how you could be infected with this mysterious disease that's killing off hundreds of thousands of people at, at a clip. What do you think of, like, just how that just these two things kind of parallel each other? Um, when you point it out, they do. But while I'm watching this movie, I don't think that. I just see you because, you know, it's a freaking alien. Like, you know what it is. AIDS, you didn't really know what it was at the time. No, I'm just saying – I'm not saying it was, it was conscious on the behalf of the filmmakers. I'm just saying – just how it fits into the style of the norms of the zeitgeist at the time. Well, but I still say no just because, like, you didn't know what age was, but this thing you knew that it was – you knew what it was, and so you know, you know what it was. You you identify what it is. It's not something you can't, can't – like a disease. It's like, oh, my God, how does it work? What does it do? This, you know, is an alien life form. You know how it affects you. You mm. know how it gets into you. You know how it kills you, and you're afraid of it as a result. Mm. It's something that's like always been there because there's been alien sci-fi movies forever where aliens invade and kill. It's something. It's an archetype that's been around forever. So, I see it when you point it out to me, but not when I watch it. Gotcha. I identify with this as an alien has come to kill us, not mm. a disease is starting and it is killing people. Mm. Um. It's and, very clear what this is. Yes. Uh, it was just something that that the brought up in conversations afterwards and, like, conversations I've had when I was up in college when I was in my film theory classes. Like, even just, like, not within the class itself. It was more like classes done and just conversations just kept going. Um, now, one of the things that, like, a lot of people, like, I remember I've gotten into some interesting conversations about this. It's, like, this versus the first Alien What's the more effective horror movie? What's the more effective alien movie? And what are your feelings on that? And if you're putting these two movies side by side. They're both extremely effective. Um, obviously, I can't... You know, alien, as a pure 
sci-fi story, or it's a pure story I would pick over this, but this I identify more with because it, you know, takes place in my time. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we're not in outer space. You know, there's no like shipping in outer space like there is in Alien. So yeah. it's something it's a, the world the, the the world that Alien is in is very different from ours. Mm. That's why I feel like this is more identifiable as a horror movie than Alien was. But the thing is, Alien once you wrap your head around the concept that it is that it's basically a haunted house movie, you're trapped in this place with this thing that's killing you one by one. That's where the fear comes from. Mm. That simple idea. Can, is where the fear comes from. Right. This, the fact that, like, this is a world that we live in, and if I was in that position, I, you know. Yeah. It, it, it would scare me more. So they, they both work in, in different terms. I mean, I give the edge just to Alien because of how iconic it's become. Right. And how uh, AVP2 for the PC back in 2001 at the time was the scariest game I had ever played and for several years was. Mm-hmm. Um, well, for me, I, I think I, I lean a little bit more towards this than Alien, and it's because, and it's something that Carpenter brings up, and it's not, it's not a fault to Alien whatsoever, but it's something that was in the back of his mind when he was making his movie that he didn't want to make a guy in a suit movie. As beautiful as it is and glor- as wonderfully designed as the Geiger xenomorph is, it's still a guy in the suit. Mm-hmm. This is something completely unique and puppeteers and the KY jelly and all the kinds of like yeah, that's what, of oh it. god and that's what makes it so much more terrifying it's not just a guy in a suit it's a thing that gets into you right that's almost like like Lovecraft it's almost un- unidentifiable or to comparatively to a a creature you would deal with on this planet and which leads me to my next point that like Alien was a monster success as soon as it happened it had a great sequel um, some say it's even better than the original, but that's a topic for a different day. Um, and then afterwards, the sequels kind of fell apart, and the oh, and then the thing on the however was lukewarm at its reception, and its credibility has only gone up since then. Which brings me to my next topic: is that longevity versus the opening weekend? Because another movie that just a sequel that came out to a very popular movie. Be- and it has almost had a similar thing. It's like Blade Runner 2049 just came out. At the time out. of this recording. At the time of this recording, just came out. And it's not doing well box office-wise, but same thing with the original Blade Runner. That didn't do well, but over time, the different cuts that came out, its popularity grew, and its status as a science fiction classic grew. How do you think, how, how do you think movies should be judged? Longevity or box office? They all factor in, and the thing about longevity, too, is that you have to wait for longevity. Of course. Um, I don't know. I feel like it's an ongoing thing. I feel I feel like as long as it it's always looked upon positively, mm-hmm. or even if, even if it's looked upon positively after the fact and it stays that way. Because the thing, once once people really saw it for the gem it was, it's it stayed that way. You know, the opinion hasn't changed back and said, you know what, it really wasn't that good after all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah, <laughs> like uh, most, like many Carpenter's movies, you know, they kind of stay that way as like classics. Some of them aren't for everyone, right? I I I would consider the thing. I, I maybe maybe given give it a little too much of a of a praise, a pat on the back. But I would consider it a perfect remake. Yeah, except for one thing, it was all based on a book. 
the thing the the thing was based on a book the original thing from another world the concept was from mm. a book from the 1930s mm. but this remake stuck much closer to that right i mean that's what and especially like the next review i'm doing for this month is the 2017 it that has more in line with the book than it does with the 1990s miniseries even though it's technically a remake but or like it is a readaptation of it, but it's something that it should be acknowledged of because both of those verses are being compared to each other. I would consider 2017 it the first mo- major motion picture adapt- adaptation because ad- bleh, adaptation, right? Because the 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 1990 thing was a TV, yeah, movie, TV movie series. You know, it's, directed is- by Tommy Lee Wallace, who is part of Carpenter's crew for a long yeah. time. Um, so. Uh, what do you think of Ennio Morricone's score in this movie? Um, it's very different from his traditional scores. You know, it didn't stand out to me as much. It, it, I, I think I was so drawn into everything else that the score was the one thing that kind of escaped me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it Maybe if Carpenter scored it, it might have been different. I mean, I, I, I kind of feel like much of his scores as time went by really captured you less and less, but they were still great as scores on their own. Like, just as music to listen to, they're really cool. Mm-hmm. But I, I... Well, I mean, this this one... This one, the score didn't really stand out too much to me. That's not, I'm not saying it's bad. No. Not at all. It's just, I feel like it... I feel like it didn't enhance the movie in any extra special way for me. I mean, other than the main theme, like the bum 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 bum. And then they have like the boom boom, and they have like a little, like something like resonance, like a little like one note is playing underneath it. There's no tracks that really stand out to them. Like if you listen to the actual soundtrack by itself, there are tracks on there. They're like, where the hell would this fit in? Like there's one like it was like it's really busy and like and it's just really like out of place. And you're like where like this would be totally inappropriate to it. But like if you ma- you think of the rest of Ennio Morricone's like body of work, whether it be the stuff we did with Sergio Leone, where it's big and bombastic and operatic. But in comparison to this, so you tell that he's very diverse in his way of composing scores. He's definitely aping kind of a Carpenter vibe for this, being very minimalistic. And that how Carpenter describes his scores is that he doesn't really think about them going into it. And he kind of just kind of play, goes with the flow. And it's just like he sees it as carpet. And you think of like John Williams. He's like what they would call Mickey Mouse, where he's – Scoring to moments in the movie like that line up perfectly, like whether it be the asteroid field chase in Empire Strikes Back or like fight scenes in Raiders of the Lost Ark or E.T. trying to escape the government, where Carpenter stuff like it's like it can almost be like dropped in and placed anywhere. And like kind of like that same idea could be applied to like Hans Zimmer's music where he's like his stuff is kind of like just done for for the scene. You kind of like almost you just pick it up and put it in anywhere else. And, like, one last thing we'll, I want to talk about before we wrap up is, like, the thing's influence on movies since then. And, like, like one of the two movies that come to mind, or, like, one of the, especially The Faculty, they, there's a, their version of the blood test scene trying to figure out who's an alien amongst the group or not. That's definitely a thing. <laughs> I don't even mean it like that. that, that that's a Bullshit. That, no, I'll Bullshit. Be a, I, that's a the hand in the Bible. I did not mean to, I did not mean to that do that. That means nothing to me. Uh, like... I swear to God, bro, I did not mean to do that. Bullshit. <laughs> Wait, I, my Vince Fuso impression is not the one helping you define that? I thought that was Donald Trump. Oh, uh, ooh, ooh, no, I, I wouldn't saw my, my vocal cords doing that. Anyway, um, then you think of Eli Ross' Cabin Fever, 
obviously the term, like first time I heard that term was actually in this movie. And that's about an infection taking out a group and that group turning on each other. And then Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight is kind of like his version of the thing. Hell, it even has Kurt Russell, has Yumar Coney used some of his score that was unused in the thing in the Hateful Eight. But, um, yeah, so I know you you say Halloween. Is, do you think Halloween is still Carpenter's best movie? Yes. I have trouble sometimes because I think because the things that like Halloween, like Halloween is a movie that changed the world. That's Carpenter's movie changing the world. However, like with all the tools that he has available to him and he has the chance to make this – I, I have to go back and forth. I'm like, which do I think is a better movie? I'm like, do I like him when he has limit, limitations put on him? Well, when we say better movie, we're not talking about, like, personal feelings on it. We could love a movie more, but still acknowledge that one is better than the other. Okay, do you still and you still think Halloween's better? I, I really, really do, just because I feel of how effective it is. And you think it's, do you think it's more rewatchable than the thing? Yes. Look how many times we just sit here on, on a normal Sunday night. Let's just, let's just watch Halloween. That's true. It's rare that we say, like, let's watch the thing. Let's just watch Halloween. Yeah. Let's just, uh, yeah. All right. Like, what we got to do? I don't know. You want to watch Halloween? Yeah, sure. That or one okay. of the sequels and we'll, car- we'll just hate each other, hate ourselves for doing that. Uh, well, uh, I mean, depending on which sequel. True. Um, uh, we'll get into all those. Yeah. So uh, let's wrap wink, it up wink. here. Um, final thoughts on John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, sure. The highest of recommendations, you know. I, I feel like it's everything a remake should strive to be. It's taking, you know, a concept of a movie that worked and making it your own, updating it, and if anything, enhancing it, going going past what it was. Um, I also recommend the, the thing from another world. It is it is very dated by its look. I mean, I'm not talking black and white and four by three. I'm talking just by the, the acting style of the time. I mean, yeah, we got to stop this thing here, see? Yeah, yeah the long takes, to, like having multiple people in a shot at once, then like each shot going on for a long yeah. period of time. I mean, the look of the monster, the monster is very defined in that one. The thing is a very defined thing, you know? It's not an organism that can take any form. It is it is a thing, much like a slasher movie killer. Right. But, I mean, the, the stunts and special effects are great. They really set that guy on fire, you know? Mm-hmm. Um. I feel as a story of just people isolated with a monster, it holds up greatly. So, I mean, if you can get around, if you, because I, I know there are people that have trouble with that old time movie thing, because it really does feel like it's from another world. Mm. You know, pun intended. Ha! But if you can get around, if you're someone who is a fan of classic movies, I mean, the thing from another world, definitely check it out. It's very riveting, very compelling. You 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 wonder what's going to happen to these people. It's a survival movie, so watch watch that too. Um, but definitely watch Carpenter's The Thing. It's amazing. Pushes the envelope on practical special effects. Uh, all the characters, just how they start to crack under the pressure, not only of the isolation. I mean, you already, in the beginning, you already see them cracking because they all have fucking drug and alcohol problems mm-hmm. from just being there so long. They don't really seem to like each other that much. No. But they're stuck together. And now we have an alien that could overtake any one of us, and they all just go bonkers. Mm-hmm. And you want to know what's going to happen. Who, who's going to survive? Right. How, are they going to kill this thing? Will the thing get away? You know, it draws it, it draws you in. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with it. I do believe this is one of the best, if not one of the best horror movies ever made. I do think you believe, I believe you need it in your collection if you're 
a John Carpenter fan or b just a horror fan in general. Get the Shout Factory Blu-ray. We're not we're not sponsored. This is by not that. a paid endorsement. No, I just think it's the best version of that movie out there for you right now, and it's gorgeous. All the special features is, is tremendous. It is everything a remake should be. Compared to last week when I was talking about Gus Van Sant's Psycho, where I complained it has so much things went wrong when it was being too rigid and it's being a copycat of the original Psycho, and and when it tried to be its own thing, it was just it was really inappropriate. This is something where it had its own vision and told its own story in an effective way. And yeah, like last episode, I was just like, I was wanting to kill myself because I was like, this. I'm like, I was like, why did I agree to do this? I'm still mad at my buddy. Would you record that one with my buddy guy? Are they still? Is he still talking to you? Yeah, he, he's the one who suggested it. Oh, and, and I like, I'm still mad at him for that. Is but... it bad that I saw that one before I saw the original Psycho? No, but as long as you recognize what I, you... I, by seeing that one, I've seen the original Psycho. Just watch it in black. I should just turn the color all the way down on my TV and there or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but like, it, but Vince Vaughn do that. I'm going to watch Gus Van Sant's Psycho with the color turned completely off on just, my TV just to spite him. Just watch it in black and white. Oh yeah, so yeah, I recommend the thing. Check it out, especially around this time of year. I mean, anyone, any time of year, but especially like if it, like if you have a snow day. And you're just stuck in the house, and like this is definitely a movie for that. But watch um, it with The Shining, just to screw with your brain even more. Oh yeah, it's a great double. And feature. watch it in a building full of people you don't really like <laughs> or trust. Your family, pretty much. Exactly. So I know you don't have social media, so I won't ask for your social media plugs. Yeah, I'm a hermit. So yeah. Um, if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney Two, my Instagram at T Rooney Ten Twelve. Follow this my. YouTube and Facebook pages under the same banner of Through the Lens Productions, where my latest short film, uh, Jack, is up, and my upcoming short film, uh, DD, is coming uh, this Halloween. And a short film about a child with a growth disorder that causes him to become an old man by the time he's 10? Yes, I, okay. I, I, I resurrected Robert Williams to uh, be in a movie for and me. And he went back in the grave when he read the script. Yes, yeah, him and Dick Clark. Ugh. <laughs> um, and, of course, if you like this show and you want to help support it, uh, give us a five-star review and written review on iTunes and subscribe to the show if you don't want to miss an episode. And, Mike, I want to thank you again for being a uh, part of this review. Thanks for having me, buddy. All right. We got big things coming up, too. Oh, well, yeah. So stick to, uh, stay tuned to the end of the next episode. At, we have an announcement. Yes. At the very end of our t- uh, 2017 It Review, uh, listen to a special report from Mike and I. Until then, everybody, hope everybody's enjoyed this review, and we'll talk to you soon.